The wisest of experts can't predict the unexpected. We're basing it off incomplete information from a virus we don't truly understand yet. The viruses aren't alive. It'll lock in to one of the protein receptors on your cell. A cell will pull it inside because it thinks it's something good. I can't just isolate myself forever in hopes that I'm never exposed to this. One night of poor sleep, you can decrease your overall immune function by 30%. The 99% solution is the same thing that I've always talked about. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. So I debated for quite a while about whether or not to release an episode on the coronavirus situation. On the one hand, I really wanted to because it is arguably affecting so many of our lives physically, mentally, emotionally. We're filled with questions, anxieties, concerns. So on the one hand, I wanted to ask the questions of experts, get information out there. But on the other hand, I didn't want to dwell too much on it and perhaps instead provide content that I thought could help our lives in many ways, regardless of the situation. That said... When Dr. Kirk Parsley, who I had on this podcast for episode number three, it was an interview on sleep because he is a sleep expert. His team reached out to me and said he was conducting interviews on COVID. Since it just showed up at my door, I figured it was meant to be. I adore Dr. Parsley. He is a wealth of knowledge. And what I think is very valuable for this conversation is his history. He was a Navy SEAL. He served as an MD to the Navy SEALs. That's how he developed Sleep Remedy. Because Navy SEALs are well known for struggling with insomnia, so he developed a natural sleep supplement to address that. But in any case, with this current situation, not only is he brilliant, has he read the literature, he can analyze the science of what's going on, but he also has that government background, so I think he can really add some nice clarity to the issue. By the way, if you'd like to take Dr. Kirk Parsley's Sleep Remedy, which is a consistent in my arsenal for supporting sleep, it basically provides the exact nutrients your brain needs to actually instigate the sleep state. So it's not a pharmaceutical, it doesn't knock you out, it just provides the ingredients you need to fall asleep. He has it in drink forms as well as in capsules. I personally love the unflavored capsules. And he is offering my listeners an amazing deal. You can get 10% off your order. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash sleepremedy and use the code melanieavalon to get that. And if you'd like to try his new lavender flavor, you can get that one for 25% off or 30% off a subscription. That is a very limited time offer and that will be at melanieavalon.com slash lavender. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash COVID. There will be a transcript on that website. So if you'd like to revisit our conversation, get more details, it will all be there. I will say I have had a few thoughts about quarantine. I realized that my typical lifestyle sort of qualifies as quarantine. (laughs) Um, As a podcaster, I work from home a lot, so a lot hasn't changed on that front. I've also learned that my shopping habits look like quarantine habits. When I go to the grocery store anyway, I typically only eat whole foods. So lots of produce, lots of meat, lots of vegetables, fruit. So whenever I go to the grocery store, I'm buying like pounds of cucumbers, pounds of meat, pounds of fruit, like every time, like I never just buy like a cucumber. So my shopping habits haven't changed, except now 
I'm checking out and people look at me like I'm, you know, the crazy girl freaking out and hoarding food. And I'm like, no, I just always buy this much food. I'm sorry. (laughs) One other thing I realized was my love language is gift giving and words of affirmation. Well, I already knew that, but my love language is not physical touch. So like, you know, some people love hugging and others don't. So I'm not a hugger. (laughs) I've never been a hugger. So one thing about quarantine is I think it's really sad for people that when their love language is touch because they can no longer hug. But for people like me who, you know, don't really like hugs that much, I'm like, oh, oh well, can't be hugging anyway. So there's that. So yes, things you can learn. Those are my current reflections on quarantine. I am a Himalaya Partnered Show. And if you follow the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also follow me on Instagram, especially now that a lot of us are in quarantine. It gives me more time to take pictures of all the things and put them on Instagram, so definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook community. That is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Real Foods plus Intermittent Fasting plus Life. We discuss everything there. It's actually sort of like a safe place. We're not hardcore discussing COVID every single second. I'm trying to keep the focus on positivity and also the understanding that whatever experience may happen, it doesn't mean it's forever. One of the things I've learned from so many interviews on this podcast is that things happen and we experience them and we may think that they mean so many things and that they will never change, but really things are constantly changing. Our experience doesn't have any meaning apart from what we give to it. And we can choose how we respond to our environment, to our situation, to our circumstances. We can use this experience to learn more about ourselves, learn about what is valuable to us in life, learn about how we respond to things that may seem out of our control. And I think we're going to become stronger from this. So hopefully this interview can be a resource for knowledge, motivation, encouragement, and provide the right dose of reality without perpetuating fear or anxiety. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I feel like it's a faux pas to say I'm really excited about this conversation today, but I am honestly really excited about this conversation. I am back here with a crowd favorite. We have Dr. Kirk Parsley. I had him on one of the first episodes actually of this podcast for an interview completely on the science of sleep. And that has been to date one of the most popular podcasts that I've had on the show Dr. Kirk Parsley, he is a wealth of knowledge. He's a former Navy SEAL. He also served as the Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. He served as an MD to the Navy SEALs. He's basically the go-to guy when it comes to sleep. And I, I like really mean that. I was actually just listening to, um, an interview yesterday with David Sinclair, who I've also had on this podcast. And, um, that episode appropriately enough was also about COVID and the topic came up about sleep and <laughs> David Sinclair said that the thing that was changing his sleep right now was sleep remedy. So no kidding. David Sinclair said that. <laughs> yes, he did. I was like, I, Oh, and then what no, I have to tell you. So um, it's funny because he said he was taking it. And then who was the interview? I think it was on Dave Asprey's podcast. And then Dave um, made a comment about the formulation of sleep remedy yeah. And I was like, actually, it's changed. It was incorrect information that was put out there. And I wanted to be like, nope, that's, <laughs> that is incorrect. But um, yeah, so David Sinclair is definitely taking sleep remedy right now and sleeping. Man, that makes me, that makes me feel successful right there. In any case, though, listeners, sleep remedy is like a game changer. I personally take it every night, especially during this crazy time when I think we all might be struggling with the the, the stress of things might be affecting our sleep. So 
Thank you, first of all, for that. I would go all into that detail, but I think for listeners, I will just put a link in the show notes to that episode because in that episode, we we dive deep into Dr. Kirk Parsley's personal history and what led him to where he is today. Um, but today's topic is something a little bit different. It's not sleep. It is actually the current COVID-19 situation. And to be honest, I when the whole COVID coronavirus thing started happening, podcasts started coming out left and right about it. And I was on the fence about whether or not to have an episode dedicated to it because I'm all about, I don't want to spread fear. I don't want to, you know, sensationalize anything. Um, So I was going to just not address it (laughs) and uh, defer to the experts, but Dr. Kirk Parsley's team actually reached out to me and said he was conducting interviews. So, I mean, it just showed up in my lap. So I had to accept and I am, I'm really, really excited about the conversation that we're about to have. So thank you so much for being here. No, you're welcome. That's quite a buildup. There's a lot of pressure on me, but I'll do what I can to live up to it. No, you will. I am, I am certain. So to start things off, just to like set the stage for everything, I think one of the biggest questions we have right now is we are experiencing this COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it's changing people's lives. I think on the one hand, some people, you know, are just really, really upset, really stressed, you know, thinking it's all doom and gloom, that we're never going to survive, that this is, you know, the most terrible thing that could ever happen to humanity. Then on the other side, we have people who think it's, you know, not a big deal at all. Um, So I guess a foundational question is, should we take this situation with COVID-19 seriously? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think with just about it, you know, with about anything complex, um, you can rule out the two extremes. It's not going to end humanity. It's not going to crumble the world's economy. And it's also not something that you should be flippant about and just say, hell, that I'm going to go about my life however I want to because it's not going to get me. I'm saying should, but to be clear about this, uh, I'm, I'm speaking from my own perspective, my own beliefs. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to should on people. Um, so it, it's you know nothing that I'm saying should be construed as expert mil, you know, medical advice. I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist, but I'm, I'm a guy who's been around and I've, I, I've been in a lot of uh, bad situations and I'm old enough to have lived through, um, you know, quite a few big issues. My businesses have been impacted by uh, lots of other things, um, you know, that we've been through already as a, as a country. Um, you know, I, I was, I was a physician, uh, I was a physician for the military during the swine flu epidemic. You know, we've obviously we've been through, you know, the 2007, 2008, you know, economic, gig, you know, we've been through 9-11. We, I mean, there's all sorts of things that have kind of come along, the Enron scandal, like all these things that have completely upended the country. Um, and, you know, it, it, it goes back to normal. Now, this seems to be more severe. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the models um, that people are touting. It, you know, the, basically the media, I think, is... is um, you know, and I'm not sure why. I don't. I don't want to um, ascribe uh, malicious or malevolent intent to this. Is if um, if you know incompetence could more likely uh, explain it, and I think that's the more likely option is that 
um, yeah, the media is afraid, uh, and the media is making the government afraid, and the government's making the people afraid, and the media is making the people afraid. Um, and at, you know, at the end of the day, um, the truth is that nobody knows, right? No, nobody has any idea. Um, you know, everybody wants to, you know, rely on on the wisdom of all of our experts. And, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that experts by their very nature, um, you know, academic experts, they're over, they're overly cautious. They're trying to avoid risk and catastrophe. Like that's kind of their, that's their job. That's their personality. That's why they're hyper-educated probably is because they need control and certainty. And so they're going to like, they're always going to be overly cautious. So if anybody starts saying, Oh, we should have done this, we should have done that based on expert advice. Well, if we listen to experts all the time, like we wouldn't take any risk in our life, right? We wouldn't be driving cars anymore. Like we wouldn't, we'd be afraid to garden at our own house or pet our pets. You know, I mean, there, there's all sorts of worst case doom and gloom that experts, you know, would give you that worst case scenario. Um, but, but the important thing is that, you know, wise, even the wisest of experts can't predict the unexpected. That's why it's called the unexpected. You know, what what wisdom gives us, like the whole idea of being old and wise and educated, is that you you know how things usually happen. You know how things usually work. And because you can look back and say, well, you know, I've been through all of this and I understand what led to this and that, which is all retrospective. We all look back like we don't understand the situation while we're in it. We never do. Then we look back, we analyze it, go, okay, we see what happened there. Now we can apply that. And so right now we have... You know, we have experts who are saying, well, you know, there's a mathematical model for the way diseases are spread, right? Um, you know, especially viral diseases. So, you know, how, do, how does a viral disease spread? What are the factors that determine how much it spreads? And they put it into a model. And you can play around with the numbers in that model. And you can have anywhere from 10,000 people dying in America to 2 million people just by shifting a few numbers around. Now, the truth is nobody knows those numbers that you're shifting around. They're all guesses, and they're guesses based on incomplete data from other countries. They're guesses based on what we've seen so far in this country. But even, you know, keep in mind, even if you base it on what you've seen in this country, there's a lot of assumptions in that, right? So to say, you know, we have this many cases and we have this many deaths or based off this many cases, well, first of all, we know, of course, that we haven't found all the cases. Secondly, we don't know how long these people have had it, right? Just because we diagnosed them yesterday doesn't mean even that they've gotten it in the last two weeks. I mean, we don't know for sure that people can't have this dormant for 20 days. We also don't know that if people are you know, more likely to die you know, between these days and those days. Um, and so if you're the only if you're looking at the model, the only number that we really know is deaths. Like we know how many people die, but we don't necessarily know why they die. And we don't know if they would have died anyway. Right. So you see it in the headlines, you know, and the media loves, you know, to spit out inflated numbers completely out of context and the worst case human human toll, uh, you know, this horrible whatever, 35-year-old doctor, five kids that was volunteering for a, a Christian hospital and contracted the virus and pushed through and ended up dying and like whatever, like they're, they're going to tell the most sensationalized story. But what we're not, but 
and one of the things that I've seen a lot, um, and I've actually contemplated just getting up every morning, reading the headlines and, and talking through what, what do the headlines really mean, right? Because they are so misleading, right? And so one of the things that you keep seeing in the headlines is so-and-so died from coronavirus complications. Okay, well, what does that mean? You know, like they, there was this thing about um, this neurosurgeon in New York City, and he was famous for doing the first separation of co-joined twins, uh, sometimes called Siamese twins. And, you know, he was heralded as his genius, and he did all this great work, you know, 50 years ago. Um, but, you know, you don't see any of that even in the first three or four paragraphs. Uh, all, you, all you see is like what, you know, what a great surgeon he is and what everybody had to say about him and how unfortunate his time was in this great things that he did with the twins and how this moved medicine forward. And, and then you get a little further, you go, okay, well, he was 86 years old and he had other health problems. So it, if he would have died of the flu, that same page, that same thing wouldn't be in on the front page and that headline wouldn't be the same. Right. And we don't know that he didn't die from the flu. Right. So here's something that a lot of people don't uh, realize is when they say that somebody's dying of coronavirus, they're saying they're dying of coronavirus. And that's not necessarily the case. They're dying with coronavirus. Right. Meaning that if you are 80 years old, and you have congestive heart failure and diabetes and high blood pressure and like all sorts of medical problems. And you could get, you could go to the hospital with a pneumonia or, a, or, or a generalized flu, like any type of viral or bacterial infection in your lungs, which is what kills most elderly people with uh, complications, because that's the easiest way to get uh, infections into your body is through your airway. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, if this is killing most of those people anyway, we don't know that that person didn't actually go to the hospital with a pneumonia, a bacterial pneumonia or a viral, a viral pneumonia from influenza B. Right. Or H1N1. Like we don't know for sure what drove them there. What we do know is that once they got to the hospital, they got tested and, you know, the test isn't 100% accurate either. Like, people need to realize that. And what the test shows is that you have the genetic information from the coronavirus, but that's consistent with the coronavirus. Now, keep in mind that same genetic information is in all coronaviruses, or almost all of them. Or in a, oh, I'm, that's overstating. It's in a lot of them. Like, it would be indistinguishable from a lot. And there's even bacteria that have that same genetic information in it. And so it doesn't mean that their symptoms were caused by the coronavirus. It simply means that we tested their, we tested their blood for, or we tested not their blood, that we tested their saliva for the genetic information that's inside of the coronavirus. And it showed that they have that genetic information. But they could have very likely come to the hospital under duress from other illnesses that were going to kill them anyway, right? Like they were already crashing and they're, they're immunocompromised. And so they got this virus too, but they might actually die before they even develop symptoms from coronavirus. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, that people are deliberately manipulating the test and making it seem like that and hiding things and making things seem worse. But I don't, I don't believe the medical community is doing that. 
what I'm saying is that's very limited as to what they can actually say. All they can say is, you know, we looked for this, we found this in their system. And if they die and we know that we found that in their system, then we're going to call it a death from that. So even if you believe 100% of the data and you just say, okay, everybody who has the coronavirus DNA in their system who dies, died from coronavirus. So even if you're willing to acquiesce to that and just say, all right, every single person who we tested positive for this that died, died from it. The death rate is still astronomically low, or not the death rate, the total death. So the so what's called the absolute risk of death. The absolute risk for death is still exceedingly low compared to all of the other things that you're very likely to die from. For example, you would be hundreds of times more likely to be diagnosed with cancer and die from cancer in the next year than you would be from coronavirus, at least the way it stands right now. It would have to get hundreds of times worse to keep up with cancer, heart attacks, stroke, automobile accidents, smoking, <laughs> obesity, like all of these things are killing people. And 99.97% of people in the world who have died in the last three months have died from something other than coronavirus. So I'm not saying that we just were flippant and we just say, hell with it, this is stupid, I'm going about what I'm doing. The, the metaphor I keep using this week um, which I think is apt and, it, and it, it's too simplistic for some people and they get offended by it. So I'll apologize in advance if it's uh, offensive. Um, but there's a great metaphor with automobiles, right? So we have three to 4,000 people die every month in automobile accidents. And that's been going on for decades. Like we've known this. This is not something new. So if you look at that, we're having like 30 to 40,000 people die of automobile accidents every single year. Well, that's a pretty big number because that's pretty close to like all the influenzas, uh, you know, like the flus, um, that the flu is anywhere from 30 to 60,000 and influenza like illnesses, which is like includes any kind of respiratory infection that leads to death. Um, that is, I want to say like 150,000 people a year. So, you know, if, if you're being rational about this and saying, okay, well, you know, what's my, what's my risk of dying from this versus dying from something else, your risk, your risk of dying from this disease or the risk of someone that you love or caring for dying of this disease is very low relative to everything else they can die from. So your absolute risk for this is super small. Now, there's also something called your relative risk, and your relative risk is, okay, knowing that, let's just say coronavirus is going to, like, let's say 50,000 people are going to succumb to coronavirus. I don't think it's even going to be that much. Um, I think it's going to be closer to 10 or 15,000. Um, but, you know, let's say that, um, you know, 15,000, or let's say 50,000 people succumb to the influenza virus. Out of those 50,000 people, not all people are equally likely to be one of the 50,000, right? So uh, a healthy child, like a, a, someone under nine years old has like a 0.0001% chance of dying from this. Somebody under 40 and healthy has like a point, you know, and again, we don't know these numbers, but to the best of what we can figure out right now has, you know, still like, 
basically about the same risk of dying from the flu. And if you're under 40, the risk of dying from the flu is pretty damn small. Um, so it's about the same. And then the older you get, the more likely you are. So like if you if you're 80 years old, and you have what we call comorbidities, meaning that you have other diseases that are putting your health at risk, putting your life at risk. If you're 80 years old enough, well, you have like a 7% chance of dying from this. But guess what? You have a 7, 8, 9, 10% chance of dying of any infection in your lungs because you're elderly and you have, you have disease. You have metabolic disease. You might have infectious disease. You might have cancer. You might have cardiovascular disease. You might have like like who knows, but you know, the older you get, the more likely you are to have disease and the more likely you are to die. And so the older you are when you get this and the more medical problems you have when you get exposed to this and keep in mind, everybody in the world is going to be exposed to this eventually, but the older you are and the more problems you have, the more likely you are to die. So your absolute risk at 80 is a lot higher than your absolute risk at 25. And so when you factor that into it, I mean, man, if you are, you know, if, you know, if let's say if you're somewhere between 30 and 50 and you're healthy and you take care of yourself and you don't have medical issues, I mean, you're probably more likely to get, die from getting struck by lightning. You're definitely more likely to die in a car crash, right? So my metaphor with the cars is like we have, we have this expectation that a certain number of people are going to die in cars. And it's not that it's not that we're okay with that. It's not that we're just saying, well, hell with it. We don't care if people die, right? We're doing what we can. And what can we do? Well, the government gets involved in mandating that cars pass a certain safety standard, right? They have to be able to survive intact from a certain crash speed and directions. And those are, those are based on what we know have killed people in the past. And now cars have to have airbags and cars have to have seatbelts. And you have to drive the speed limit and you have to have headlights on at night and you have to stop at red lights and you have to stop at stop signs and you have to obey little road signs and you have to slow down for school, school zones. There's all these things that we do. Um, and we've agreed as a society that we're doing the best we can to prevent automobile accidents and automobile fatalities, but people still die. And in fact, worldwide, 1.2 million people die of car crashes, of traffic accidents every year, 1.2 million every year. And we're looking at 35,000 deaths from coronavirus worldwide right now. If it were 10 times more, it would still be a third of car crashes. The point is nobody gets out of bed in the morning and says, oh my God, I'm so afraid I'm going to die from a car crash today. Even though you, your risk of dying in a traffic accident is infinitely higher than your risk of getting this disease, everybody's waking up and worried about this disease. And here's why. Because if you woke up in the morning and you pulled up your social media feed and you watched your television and you read the newspaper, and you know we have 90 people per day, average, 90 people per day die in automobile accidents in America. So if every morning you woke up the news was talking about how all 90 people died, where they died, what state they died into, and telling you the human toll of this. You know, it was a 75-year-old grandmother on her way to her five-year-old grandchild's fifth birthday, and this, da, 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 and it was just tragic, and she was such a great person. And yeah, it's sad. But if they did that every single day, everybody would be afraid to drive cars. 
And what would we do at that point? Would we just say, okay, no more cars? Like we're not going to drive cars anymore. Of course not, because that would shut down our way of life. And so I'm not saying what we should or shouldn't do, but I'm just saying we should. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. I'm just saying we should. Uh, I'm just saying it's worth considering how how this stacks up relative to other risks that we knowingly accept every single day. And therefore, what can we do about it as a society? And what should we do about it? Right. So we could quit driving cars, but we have we as a society, as a group, have decided that's not reasonable. We don't want to quit driving cars. We're going to really push, you know, for people to be as safe as possible and cars to be as safe as possible. And we're continually improving on that. So should we say nobody can leave their house? Well, probably that's reasonable for a certain amount of time, but how long? And is it the same everywhere? You know, if you live in Tucson, Arizona, your risk of getting this disease, no matter what you do, is infinitesimally small right now, exceedingly small right now. If you live in New York City, your risk is a lot higher. So we shouldn't treat people in Tucson, Arizona, the same way we're treating people in New York City. And I keep saying should. I don't have a better way of saying it. But just to be clear, I'm not saying I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying these are different things to consider. No, this is so fascinating. And I think it's so valuable to just dismantle and demystify what actually is happening. And I mean, hearing you talk about all of that, I feel like it's become, it's the perfect storm of fear because, I mean, it's fascinating what you're saying about all the deaths being attributed to Corona, regardless if that was, you know, the entire cause of death. Um, It's like we could easily say of all the people that died, quote, from Corona, I wonder what would be the second most common, you know, degenerative disease or metabolic condition that that person might also have, you know? Well, it would, it would, it would be, it would be influenza like illness, right? So it would mean that they, that they had some sort of respiratory infection, meaning that could be H1N1, like the swine flu, which is influenza A, it could be influenza B, it could be a bacterial infection, it could be MERS, it could be SARS, like it could be any of these things that we just kind of lump into that category. And next year, coronavirus will be in that category. You see what I'm saying? So we just keep, as things pop up, we just add those to the category. Like more people died from swine flu this year than died from the standard flu we knew about in 2009. But all you heard was total number of flu deaths. Nobody's saying, oh my God, swine flu, swine flu. Like, yeah, the total number under the total area under the curve, the total number of people dying doesn't seem to change no matter how many different infectious, you know, respiratory infections we add, you know, let's say a hundred years from now, we're, we're tracking 20 different infections that are killing people. The total area under the curve as a, as a portion of the population is probably going to remain fairly constant because unless something is just a lot more deadly, which this doesn't appear to be any more deadly than a lot of other things, unless something is just infinitely more deadly, it's really going to kill the same people right? The same people are going to succumb to it. And, you know, if this turns out to be truly a 1% instead of a 0.1%, which is unlikely, but let's say it, it turns out to be a 0.1 or 1% death rate instead of a 0.1, 0. 0.1 to 0.3 is what the general flu is considered. Even if that's the case, all that means is that when we track this, when we look back on this over a year, more people 
and and I don't mean to sound this, this, I don't have a smoother way of saying this. I don't mean to be callous about this, but more people who were going to die anyways died of that. Right. So, so at least the way we tracked it, but even if, you know, even if, uh, you know, let's say there's, there's three things, there's three infections that usually kill people a year. It's oversimplifying, but like, let's say there's three, there's three, uh, respiratory infections that kill the elderly and infirm every year. And, and they make up 30 to 60,000 people. Well, if you have one that has, you know, a death rate that's 10 times more, um, than the other three, well, then it's 10 times more likely to kill people under that curve, but it doesn't mean it's 10 times more likely to kill people outside of that curve. See what I'm saying? So like now maybe 80% of people will die from coronavirus out of the hundred percent of people who died, which is very likely to be the same hundred percent of people who are going to die or who are likely to die from something, some other infection. Does that make sense? I feel like that's getting messy. No, no. That's actually what I was trying to get to was like the delineation between the infectious disease side of things versus the degenerative and how right. you could, in a way, if you say you reframe the death rate and instead of attributing the cause of death to coronavirus complications, you just changed the label and attributed it to degenerative disease or metabolic or immune system complications, which I think could still be true in most of the cases. It's just that potentially coronavirus was the catalyst that, um, I see what you're getting at. And and I think a good metaphor for that is this to say, if the medical community was really hot, um, right now on alcohol related deaths, and then they therefore made a rule that anybody who dies with a measurable blood alcohol level died from alcohol related death. I mean, you could say it, right? Because it's like, well, they they had alcohol in their system, so it's related, right? I mean, they, they might have died from the flu, but, you know, they came in with, with alcohol in, on, in their blood, you know? Um, or they died from a car crash when they were, they were stopped at a red light and, you know, somebody hit them going 100 miles an hour and killed them. But they had, they you know, they had had a glass of wine, so they died from an alcohol-related incident. To be even more um, shocking, what if we made that like processed foods or something? Right, right. Probably would be about eighty percent, ninety percent. Well, here's here's a good one. Here's a good one we could say: um, obesity-related complications. I was actually going to say that. Right. If you were if if you said everybody who died in America who was obese died from obesity-related complications. The obesity rate and the the rate of obesity death would be a hundred times more anything else, right? It would be higher than cancer and heart disease and everything else because we have forty percent of our our population is obese. Yeah, and I I don't mean to put that lightly, but I I think it really can make you reevaluate the numbers and what's happening. Although I I have a big question. So when a person does die, quote from coronavirus, are they dying? from the actual virus or is it from the cytokine storm that's occurring and tearing apart their body? What's actually happening there? Yeah. So the, the cytokine storm, um, that that's, that's an overblown misnomer and, and the media again, um, yeah, that's a process that happens during severe infections and it happens in all respiratory disease, you know, 
No, not all, but you know, it, it's a significant, it's a significantly likely process to be going on either leading to your death or going on during the time of your, you know, declining health. And, you know, all that is, is your immune system just kind of flushing everything it possibly can to try to fight off this infection, which is obviously, obviously killing you. So, you know, what people actually die from with the virus. So let's, let's talk really quickly about, you know, what a virus is. Okay. So a virus is really just a, it's a hollow shell. So you can think of like any kind of like, you know, a good thing to think, think about, I guess, would be like one of those little rubber kind of spiky balls that look like they have like a million little you know spikes on them. That would be a good model for a coronavirus. And that, that's why coronaviruses are called that, because when you look at them two dimensionally, which means like you just take a slice down the middle of them or something, all those things sticking out makes it look like a crown and, you know, crown and uh, Corona is Latin for crown. So that's why it's called a coronavirus. So if you had like this spiky little rubber balls with all the spikes on it and you put like, you know, a little ticker tape of information inside of it, that's what a virus is, right? The viruses aren't alive. So when somebody says, oh, it can live on this one, it's like, well, it can't live, period, because viruses don't live. There's no there's no life in there. A virus does nothing. You put a, you know, you put a virus down on a piece of paper or a piece of metal or concrete or whatever, it just sits there until, you know, either gets degraded by water or wind or, you know, radiation from the sun or whatever, but, you know, it gets broken down and then it becomes nothing. It becomes sort of a pile of mush. And so what happens when you have what's called a viable virus, meaning that that virus hasn't been broken down into nothing. It hasn't become a ball of mush. And maybe you got it from somebody coughing or sneezing on you. Maybe you touched something and then touched your eye. So it's important to realize that your first line of defense for almost every infection is your skin. Your skin fights, your skin gets rid of all of that. Like viruses can't go through your skin and neither can bacteria. And, you know, very few parasites can even go through your skin. So like, yeah, the, your skin is your shell. Like that's your primary immune system. Now, there are parts that are exposed to the world that aren't skin, right? And that's your eyes and the inside of your nose and the inside of your mouth. That's kind of it, right? So if you if you get a virus that touches your skin, it does nothing until you put it in your mouth or your nose or your eye. Once you put it in your mouth, or your nose or eyes, all that virus does is it floats around in your bloodstream until it, it attaches itself. So it has those little spikes that you see on those balls that they're, that they're showing. There's little protein structures, right? And those protein structures are recognized by certain protein receptors that are on cells. And this virus will float and it'll lock in like a lock and key, like a key into a lock. It'll lock in to one of the protein receptors on your cell. And then the cell will pull it inside of the cell because it thinks it's something good. You know, it thinks it's something that it should be binding to, you know, because it looks like some other protein structure that would ordinarily be good to take into the cell. So it kind of, it's like a Trojan horse, right? It kind of tricks the cell into bringing it inside. And then what it does is it goes into the nucleus of the cell and it changes the DNA expression. So every cell in our body has DNA and every cell in our body actually has the same DNA. But the reason a liver cell is different from a heart cell is different from a muscle cell is different from a neuron is because all of the DNA isn't expressed. A very small portion of the DNA is expressed, meaning that a very 
a very small portion of that DNA is being read. And when that that small portion of DNA gets read in that particular cell, it leads to that cell behaving in a certain way. And if it replicates, meaning it makes another cell, it makes the same kind of cell because that's the, that's the DNA that's being expressed. So what the virus does is it injects its information, which is viral DNA, essentially, or bacterial DNA, which is called RNA. And that goes into the nucleus and it affects which one of those which ones of those DNA pairs are being expressed by that cell. And it leads that cell, it tricks that cell into making more RNA particles or more RNA particles and more viral shells. And it makes a bunch of that virus. And then once it makes so much of that virus that the cell is literally bursting at the seams, it explodes and it dumps all of the viruses that it made into the bloodstream. And now we can have exponential growth. So all of those can then go and attach. And I don't know how many it is. I mean, it could be, it maybe it's making 10 viruses, maybe it's making 10 million viruses, but it dumps all of that out into the bloodstream. And then those go attached to other cells and the same process repeats. So if you, if you think about that, unless a virus went through and attached itself to every cell in your body, and keep in mind, you have trillions and trillions of cells in your body. If the virus were able to take over every cell of your body, or let's say even half of the cells of your body, of course you would die. You would actually die from the virus and viral infection at that point. But that's not what happens because that would take way too long. It's completely unrealistic. And because we have immune systems, what our immune systems do is they fight off things that aren't actually supposed to be in our bloodstream, right? So our skin and our adrenals like our fight or flight system, our adrenal, our, what's called our adrenal cortical system, like that system protects us from what's outside of our body, right? That's where we get the fight or flight that gets us away from lions and tigers and predators and people with guns and car crashes and, you know, keeps us from making dumb decisions, right? Um, that's the outside of our body. Once it gets in, inside of our body, we have an immune system that we call the immune system, right? And you know, you're born with some of that and some of that's learned. And so what's happening right now you know, it's when you when you're born, you you come uh, you come programmed with your mom your mom's uh, immune system essentially. So if your mom has been exposed to something, your immune system will recognize that right away. And so it's very unlikely to infect you. And so here's the game: if the virus attaches itself to the cell and then it makes a bunch of much makes a lot more viruses and then that cell erupts and it puts a ton more viruses into the bloodstream. The faster your immune system recognizes that those things aren't supposed to be in your, in your system, the faster you get rid of it, the less likely you are to show symptoms. So you can see very easily if let, you know, let's say you have, you know, 300 trillion cells in your body and the virus managed to manages to infect a million cells. Well, that's nothing, right? Like that's not, you're probably not even going to realize you have it at that point. Like that's not enough to make you sick because you haven't decreased the activity of enough cells. Now in things like hepatitis, when all those viruses are just attacking one organ, it tends to be more dangerous. But when we're just talking about a generalized influenza like this, this actually obviously is primarily affecting the lungs and it's causing the most havoc in the lungs. But viruses can attack any kind of cell. What actually makes you feel sick is your immune system fighting it. And this is the same thing with the flu. And this is the same thing with the cold. Like the cold, the common cold is a coronavirus. 
It's a different coronavirus, but it's a coronavirus. Uh, obviously, the flu is influenza viruses. But these things, are, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're going into and they're, and they're affecting cells, and your immune system fights them. Even if you already have immunity to it, which is your acquired immune system, which is we'll talk about next. In your acquired immune system, basically you have these little proteins that we mark it with, right? And we call those antibodies. And these antibodies, essentially, they recognize that this is a bad guy. And so it's like these antibodies are attaching themselves to the virus and then they're acting like a beacon, right? So think of it like a little strobe light. The antibody attaches itself to a virus and then it starts flashing its strobe light. Now your immune system goes, oh, check out that strobe light. Let's go kill that. That's a bad thing. So what we don't currently have, we don't currently have antibodies to this virus, which is why this virus is dangerous. So in the absence of having antibodies, that virus gets to infect a lot more cells before our immune system catches on to it. So if you have if you have a marginal immune system to begin with, it's going to take you a lot longer to catch on and your immune system is going to have a lot harder time defeating it, not only because it took longer to catch on so there's more viruses, but it was a weaker immune system to begin with. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. 
Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first 
first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. My mind is being blown in so many ways right now. Um, Okay. Huge question here. I feel like I could have a whole, a whole episode just on the consciousness of viruses. So viruses are not alive. Bacteria are quote alive. Yeah. So is it kind of like the difference between, I'm just trying to come up with like a metaphor. Is it like the difference between if you threw a ball at something, the ball itself is not alive, but it's going based on this forward momentum that's keeping it going and it could, you know, hit something compared to like a bird that is actively flying and hit something. I'm just wondering what, like what drives the virus? Is it, is it just the momentum of that information moving forward that's driving it? Like why, what's keeping it going if it's not alive? Think about all viruses as being equal. And just for simplicity's sake, all bacteria being equal, right? So if, if, you know, we were to do like a, um, a late night, uh, you know, law enforcement shows, you know, where they're, uh, they're going around and solving murders and whatever, you know, and we have this black light, right. And the black light shines on fluids or blood or like whatever it is in the, in the shows and they shine the light and like, Oh, look at all this that you can't see with the naked eye. Well, if viruses and bacteria, even just viruses, if viruses were something that resonated with the black light like that, it would, it would blind us. Right. I mean, they are everywhere. There are viruses everywhere. And it doesn't matter if it's a virus, which isn't alive, a bacterium, which is alive, a plant or an animal. The whole sort of point of life and everything on this, everything on this planet. Right. Like you can't. Well, you can't. But we don't usually ascribe consciousness to plants. But think about a flower. A flower is trying to spread its genetic information with pollen. Right. And it even has some helpers. Bees can come and get it and take it to somewhere else. You know, plants can drop seeds and nuts that become more of that plant because it's it's pro, it's promulgating, it's perpetuating its own genetic material. And humans and other animals are the same, right? When we when we cohabitate, like when we get together, when we when we base pair and we procreate. We're perpetuating our DNA over somebody else's DNA or some other animals. The whole end of the game on this planet is to continually promulgate your DNA to try to be more of you. 
Um, and this, you know, this is anthropomorphic, meaning that like we're tr- we're ascribing human goals and desires to things that don't have it. Like, so we, we don't think plants have this or viruses or bacteria, but it's still true that the end, the end game of everything with genetic Im- information in the world is to try to get more of its genetic information out there in the world. This is where procreation with animals comes from. It's like we are getting together in families and we call viruses, we classify viruses in families and coronaviruses are a family. Let's back that up a step and think about, okay, let's say that I am, I am uh, the king of a warmongering country and all I want to do is take over the entire world. And I want to take over the entire world so that I can make everybody my slave and they can do my bidding. They can do whatever I want them to do and they can make products for me. They can, you know, make food for me. They can, you know, bring me their daughters, like whatever. I'm just like this horrible, nasty person. And I, like, I am trying to promulgate my DNA and my country's DNA across the entire world. Well, you can think of a virus like that. And I'm not saying that a virus is malicious because it doesn't have the human intent behind it. But if that were true, it, you know, if we go back to my metaphor, the worst thing that I could do is to have my army go out and kill everybody on the planet. Because then how would I promulgate my DNA? Right. I, and I wouldn't have any slaves. I wouldn't have any worker bees. So if a virus is trying to make a slave out of my cell, one of the cells in my body, it's trying to make a slave out of it to make more viruses because it wants to perpetuate its own genetic information. So if that if that were to happen, but the virus did it so effectively that my immune system could never catch on to it within a very short order of time, because you know, let's say that every cell it infects produces a million more viruses that then go into effect a million other cells that then go on to cause those million cells to produce a million more, right? And you could see in pretty short order it would infect every cell in my body and I would die. But if I die, I can't pass it on, right? So viruses, viruses that are so deadly that it kills everything that comes into contact, or even if it killed 50% or 30% of the things that it came in contact with, it wouldn't exist very long because the host that they're trying to use to replicate themselves are dying and they're therefore not infecting anybody else. Differentiating still between the viruses and the, the bacteria so what makes a bacteria alive and not a virus alive? It's kind of sounding sort of like artificial intelligence is like viruses. I'm just wondering what drives it. It's not a great metaphor, but kind of the best metaphor that I can think of is that a virus is more like a parasite, right? So a bacteria, bacteria is by and large are symbiotic. Like bacteria are all competing with each other. They're all trying they're all trying to be the only game in town, but there's other bacteria competing for the same resources. And so there's lots of different bacteria around. You know, bacteria is, it's an organism that actually has a life cycle that can, it can replicate itself. It doesn't need something else to replicate itself. And it has functions. It takes in material. It does work. It puts out material and it creates waste. And that's what we say is alive, right? Because if you think of like a single cell bacteria, single cell organism, it's doing exactly what a human does, right? We're taking in nourishment from our environment, which could be sunlight, it could be air, it could be oxygen, it could be carbon dioxide, it could be food that we eat. 
but we're taking in nourishment from our external environment. We're bringing that internal. We're doing work with it, and then we're excreting waste. And a big part of the work that we do as human beings is basically keeping the body alive. And the immune system takes a lot of those resources. And this, I'm, I'm just going to tie this in real quick because I never answered your question fully. When we take in these viruses, our immune system uses more of our energy to fight that virus than it would ordinarily be using. So let's say, you know, my body has an energy level of 100, 100%. So I have 100 bits of energy. And if I don't have any infections, I still have bacteria in my bloodstream. I still have viruses in my bloodstream. I still have some you know, damaged tissues that need to be taken away and some new tissues that need to be developed. So my immune system is doing that. And so maybe the immune system is using 10% of my energy. Well, now when I get an infection, it could use up 30% of my energy or 40% of my energy, or 50% of my energy. And depending on how much energy I have and how efficient my body is, meaning how healthy I am, at a certain point, the, the energy expense of my immune system takes so much energy away from the rest of my body that my body can no longer live. And that's what's killing people, right? That's where the death comes from. Because your entire immune system your immune system is taking over almost your entire energy source. And so you can no longer do what you need to do to the rest of the body. You're, you, know, you, can't, you, know, you can't replicate your, your cardiac cells. You know, you, like your, your, blood, your bloodstream is filled with a bunch of uh, you know, immunomodulators, so a bunch of chemicals that are affecting your immune system. Your, your, uh, your, blood, your blood vessels are dilating and your capillaries are dilating and they're leaking your blood out into, this, into the tissues around them to try to fight off this infection. And essentially, you know, you die from, uh, I mean, eventually, right? I mean, the, by definition, everybody dies from heart attack, right? Because it, it, you're not dead until your heart quits pumping. So at some point, you don't have enough resources to operate the rest of the body. And that's what they call this multi-organ system failure. I mean, basically, it's just like when you took all of, you know, you took all of the electricity from the house and you plugged it just into the microwave and like 100 percent of the electricity for the house is going to the microwave. Nothing else in the house works anymore. Now, if you put all the electricity back to the rest of the house, everything would work again. So it's really just a resources issue. It's not that the virus is damaging you so much. It's just taking up too much of your resources for you to be able to keep living. Okay, that's fascinating. So is that why, for example... People with severely low BMIs are at risk of dying from things like the flu, for example. Is it because they don't have enough, you know, body fat or energy resources to fight off the infection? Well, yeah. I mean, it it, it depends on how, like, if it's extremely low is is you know to be pathological. So you know, pathology just means that it it's something that resembles a disease state, something we've labeled as a disease state. So if your BMI is low enough, there's probably some sort of underlying metabolic or hormonal issue leading to that. And so you have some, you have some impairments in either energy production or immune system, or, you know, the, the reason viruses cause fevers is because, you know, fevers is a, it's a deliberate inflammation, you know, um, increase of your, of your uh, body's core temperature, because a lot of, bacteria and parasites and, and viruses can't, sur can't survive and uh, can't 
keep existing and growing in a high temperature environment. And so it's a defense mechanism. Um, but you have to have a certain amount of brown fat that causes what's called non-shivering thermogenesis, which means basically that your muscles and other tissues are generating the heat. So you could have, you could have something as simple as like, well, the person's BMI is so low, they're so cachectic, we call it, meaning they, they lack so much mass outside of their skeletal system and their organ systems that they don't, they can't even generate enough heat to create a fever. So they get overwhelmed by something that they might have been able to fight off. Or they could have some metabolic disorder where, you know, essentially their energy sources, like, you know, maybe blood glucose can't get into their cells very well. And so as the cells start getting overtaxed and requiring more energy, those cells essentially starve to death individually. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Like BMI is not a great number. I mean, BMI, BMI is like a, taking a picture of somebody and then saying, yeah, these are their health issues based on this picture I took of them. Um, you know, it's, it's just a descriptor. And most of, that's the other thing that I keep telling people during this is like, keep in mind that, um, you know, most of science, especially biological sciences, almost all of biological science is a, it's a description, right? So we, we put fancy Latin names on it and it sounds complex, but it's just describing stuff. Like the coronavirus, for example, it looks like a crown. So it's called a coronavirus. Well, coronavirus sounds way more important than crown looking virus. Right. But it's it's the same thing. It's like all we did is observe it. We can't create a coronavirus. We don't know how to we don't know how to destroy a coronavirus necessarily. It's like we don't we don't know exactly how it works. We know some characteristics of it. We have a way to describe it. And so when we look at disease states, so if you look at something like the flu, one of the really important numbers is the total death rate. Well, to know the total death rate, you have to know the total infection rate. We've never known that. We will we will never know that. But every year it's around and it's the same type of illness and it looks and behaves very similarly. We you know, we get a little better at saying, well, we think this many people had it. We think that many people had it. And we know this many people died, so therefore it's the death toll, it's the death rate. We can also the, the most important number when they're talking about these models, and keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind, all models are wrong. One hundred percent of models are incorrect, right? But some models are useful. Like there's no way to model this. Like I was talking about before, like experts are good at predicting things based on things happened in the how things happened in the past, but nobody is good at predicting the unexpected or the unknown. So, you know, we, we can't predict the stock market. We can't predict weather very well. We can't predict hurricane patterns and tornado patterns very well. Like we're getting better every year we get better, but we, we're not great at predicting and we can't predict economic downturns. We can't predict all sorts of things. We can't predict success in America, right? Like there's all sorts of things we can't predict. And this is no different, but the more information we have, the better we'll be at predicting it. So our models can get better over time. But we just don't know enough right now. One of the most important things in how many people are going to die is something called the R naught. And the R naught is, is a number that describes how many people will get this infection from each person. So if 100 people get it, and we take one person out of that 100 and we say, how many people are going to get it from this one person? Well, it could be anything. It could be like... You know, it could be less than one, 
right? It could be for every three people who have this infection, between the three of those, they'll give it to one more person. And then it'd be like a 0.3 R0. Or it could be 10. Like for every one person with this disease, they're going to they're gonna spread it to 10 people. And that would be really bad because you can see how quickly that would grow, right? Because 100 would become 1,000 super quick, right? 1,000 become uh, 100,000 really quickly. The R0 is the best predictor. Uh, of this whole formula, you can play around with all the different numbers. And these numbers, again, these aren't known quantities. Nobody knows these things. We're basing it off of incomplete, incomplete information worldwide from a virus we don't truly understand yet. And we're plugging them into these formulas based on the way we know other viruses tend to behave and based on what we think these numbers are for this virus right now, which we'll never know. We'll know a lot more two years from now than we know right now, and we'll be able to model it better then. But the R0 changes more than anything. If the R0 is one, meaning every one person in this country is going to give it to one other person, our total death rate is like beyond what we would expect right now. Right? We're only going to have a few thousand people die because so few people die. If the R0 is 2, we could have 15,000 people die. If the R0 is 2.3, we have 800,000 people die. If the R0 is 2.5, we can have like 2 million people die, right? So it's very, very small changes in this um, R0. And we don't know the R0. We, like we have some guess, and it is an absolute guess. Because keep in mind, if I have the virus right now, I could be spreading it to people. And if I never feel sick and I eventually develop immunity to this and it passes from me, but I've infected 10 people, nobody knows that came from me. And also if I live on a hundred acre farm in Wyoming, or if I live in New York city, it's a totally different number of people I'm going to infect. It depends like context matters. So if we knew the R not, we would be better at predicting this. We don't have any idea what the R0 is. They're saying it's anywhere between 2 and 5, which means that it's anywhere between 0 and 100, because we don't know. We just don't know. Okay, so some more questions about the immunity aspect and infecting and transmitting. So you were talking about how the way the virus infects people is that it's basically taken into the cell. You know, the, the, the body thinks it's something else. Is immunity with when the, the body becomes aware that the virus is, you know, not itself, so then the body just actively does not allow it to attach? Or is immunity actively fighting off the virus? Does that make sense? Yes, it's absolutely both, right? So what our innate, immun- our innate immunity is, is that we have, we, have, we have different types of cells in our body that fight off different threats different ways. But it's the same across everybody, right? So we have natural killer cells. We have, like, we have lots of different types of cells that behave. Like we have some cells that basically get near something dangerous and then they just like spew all these chemicals out of themselves and they, and they kill whatever's, in, whatever's around them. Um, because these are toxic things that will kill the, that will destroy the, the virus's shell or it will destroy the bacteria around it. We also have cells that will literally just eat them. It looks like a Pac-Man. They'll just like take them in and inside of those, they have all sorts of chemicals that just degrade it down to nothing. So that's our innate system. Are those macrophages? 
Yes, in macrophage, yes. Um, and the acquired immune system is other immune cells. Uh, I, I mean, actually, I guess, I think technically it could, it, it could, it can include um, some of those as well, but definitely other innate immune cells. Um, this is where like your T cells and B cells, these helper cells and so forth are talking about. So what, when you have an antibody, so an antibody is basically like the, that's the strobe light. Their immune system says, hey, we recognize you and we're going to model the protein structure on your outside. We're going to use that as a way to develop a strobe light that's going to stick to you. And then we're going to put this strobe light on you. And as soon as that strobe light on you, you're toast because all these natural killer cells and macrophages and cytokines and all these things are going to crush you. They're going to kill you as soon as the strobe light's on. Now, if I have a really, really good immune system and I put one virus in my body and my immune system could recognize that as a threat and it develops an antibody to it before it kills it. And now I'm and then if it goes on, proliferates that antibody and says, this is really important. We're going to make a billion of these. Now, I became immune because one viral cell. It never even got a chance to go into any of my cells and rupture and, you know, dump a bunch of other viruses in my skin. So I just had this one, like one virus cell that got into me, my immune system caught on to it. It, it, it designed the strobe light in case it gets in my body again. And now I'm going to fight it up. Now that's completely unrealistic, but I'm doing this to be simplistic versus I have an immune system that's kind of slow and I have to have, you know, 10 billion viruses in my bloodstream before my immune system figures it out how to build the strobe and figures out that this is bad and starts attacking everything with the strobes on them. So that's where your, that's where your immune health comes into play, right? So if you think about it, this is another thing that changes that are not, I was talking about the infectious rate to other people. This is also changed by how long I have that virus and how many of those viruses exist in me. So if I get one in me and my immune system catches on and kills it and develops antibodies to it and I never get another one in me, well, obviously I'm never going to get sick and I'm never going to give it to anybody else. But if I get one inside of me and that leads to a million inside of me before my immune system can fight it off, I have a chance of coughing some of those million out or sneezing some of those million out or touching my own mouth or nose or eye and then touching something else and just passing that along to somebody else. So I become more infectious. Now, if my immune system wipes it out in a day, I'm only infectious for one day. If it takes my immune system 20 days to wipe it out, I'm infectious for 20 days, maybe longer, right? So that, like this changes the R not drastically. Okay. This is, this is actually answering a question I've had literally since I was a child. I never, I never understood how you could be vaccinated against a virus because it didn't make sense to me that even if you gave your body the quote information to fight off this virus, I was like, isn't there always the chance that the virus could still win? I guess since viruses compared to bacteria don't have that I don't know that like sentient aspect. It's more likely that if they never get a foothold that they're, they just don't see a chance basically. Does that make sense? I was just always, I was like, how can it be a fail safe? Here's, here's how the vaccine works. So your immune system never attacks the genetic material. It, attack, it attacks the virus's shell. 
right? So my spiky ball metaphor, it actually destroys the ball. The ticker tape inside of it just gets dissolved by the fact that it no longer has a shell around it. So what we do with the vaccine is we give you the shells with no genetic information in it. So your body, your immune system gets to learn that that shell floating around is bad. And we're going to learn how to market. We're going to kill it. So we have to give you a lot of them to give you a really good chance of catching you know, your immune system of figuring it out and developing antibodies to it. Now, if you get the real virus, your body already knows what the viral shell looks like and it's ready to destroy it. And the real virus has the dangerous genetic information in it that could cause your body to replicate it. And the, the vaccine itself does not have the genetic information in, in general. That's, a, again, an oversimplification, but that's the basic idea. I am loving this. This is like the magic school bus episode I always wanted to have in a conversation. Um, so back to people having it and not being aware that they have it. Do you think that a lot of people at present had the coronavirus already, have it now and are unaware? I think people, more and more people keep asking like, oh, I had symptoms very similar. And I guess we can go over that for people who aren't familiar, what are the symptoms of the coronavirus? Um, but people now are like reflecting on, oh, I was really sick, you know, a few months ago and I had all these symptoms and it, you know, it was hard to get rid of. Um, do you think a lot of people actually did have it? I know like my family, for example, um, they traveled in Europe a few months ago and they all got some sort of thing. <laughs> and um, they've been asking me, is it possible that, you know, it was actually circulating in Europe already and people just weren't aware of it. So yeah. Do you think, um, do you think a lot of people have had it? There's no question that a ton of people have had it for a long time. If you look at how viruses spread um, and how quickly they spread, I mean, you just see like how quickly are we seeing these symptoms all over the world? Well, it's very unlikely that this virus magically started at exactly the same time in all these countries that are experiencing the same, like these increased death rates right now. We know that China has had this since at least November, right? And there are, I want to say there's like 40,000 people a day in America going to and from China. So what are the odds that, you know, from November to March, nobody came back from China with this virus? I mean, that doesn't exist. Like we, that the odds, are, you know, the odds of that just aren't, even worth considering. They're, the odds of that are essentially zero. And so we learned about this deliberate, like directly from, you know, the, 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 uh, the Chinese, I, I, I don't know if they were Chinese nationals or they're people that traveled to China and, you know, they came back to Seattle and they had this illness and we were already aware that China had this illness and these symptoms weren't matching what we expected the flu to be. And it was something different. So we started tracking it. Seattle is one city. Like how many other cities do people come back from China, right? And of course, New York's a metropolitan area. There's more traveling. And there are people from China traveling to all over Europe. And lots of people from the East Coast travel to Europe. And lots of people from the West Coast travel to Southeast Asia. And, you know, uh, Italy has something like 600,000 Chinese nationals living there. 
that China controls uh, one of the major ports in Italy. Um, and so you know, there's, there's absolutely no question that this has been around for a really long time. So the question is, the, the one question that does exist is, to what extent has it been around for a really long time, right? Is, has it just been like really simmering? Let's say the R0 is, you know, the R0 is low. Let's say the R0 is 1.3, which is about like the flu. And, you know, if only a few people had it, you know, and let's say it really did start in China, which is likely, but we don't know for sure. Um, let's say it really started in China and every one person in China gave it to 1.3 people. But also everybody in China who had it flew over to the United States or flew over to Europe or whatever, and they gave it to 1.3 people. And we know it's been around since November, and if they're giving it to, you know, if every person's infecting somebody else, and the next day those, that 1.3 is giving it, like it could have just been this really slow simmer. And like we're now seeing just, and, and I also want to clarify I, I want to clarify something to, to your listeners. Exponential growth isn't like a set rate of growth. What exponential growth means is that the growth is dependent upon the existing number. So if a million people have the virus and they're spreading it to 1.3 people, then that growth is based on a million people spreading it versus you know the growth of just... 1.3 plus 1.3 plus 1.3 plus one, like, right. It's a, it's a million times 1.3 because a million people have it. So it's based on the overall population that you're studying. So if you're thinking about who, how many people have the virus and how many people are going to have the virus next week, that's based on how many people, how many people are going to have it next week. How many new cases are we going to have next week is based on how many people have it right now. And that's all exponential growth means. The other thing is to consider what does it mean when we say, X number of people have it. We have X number of cases. So there's lots of things that lead. There's lots of variables in how many people have it. The biggest variable is how many people we test, right? If we test everybody, we're going to find a lot more cases than if we test 10,000 people. So who do we test? How many do we test? Well, we could test people that just have symptoms. We could test people who just have symptoms and they're in a high risk category. We could test everybody, whether they have symptoms or not. And we could only test people who are like in serious distress and look like they might need to go to an, an intensive care unit. So anything in between, we can test. Now, every country isn't testing the same with the same standard. So we might say we're going to test everybody in America. And Italy, they might say we're only going to test the really sick people that show up to the hospital. And, you know, someone else might say, well, we're just going to test people who have fevers, right? And so there's all sorts of different ways to test it. So unless you test everybody on the planet, you're never going to know how many people actually have it. So when the cases grow, all that means is that we've uncovered a lot more people that have it. That doesn't mean that we're finding – that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that it grew to that many, right? And this isn't – you know, statistically, this is an improbable but it could be, you know, the 125,000 people that we've tested that have this virus. It could be that all 125,000 of those people have had this for two months, right? It's, that's very unlikely, but I'm just saying that would be that would be statistically possible in, in you know, a, a test like that and study like that. So when we say we have new cases, what does that mean? 
the other thing is what is the risk of having that case, right? So the risk of having that case is dependent upon other variables, which makes it a relative risk. So the risk of you needing medical attention, the risk of you giving to somebody else, the risk of you dying from this is all dependent upon how old you are, where do you live, where do you work, what, how good is your immune system, what what other comorbidities do you have, do you have medical issues, are you taking medications, do you, you know, are you, do you have another issue, like all this stuff. So we don't, I mean, there, there's absolutely no way of knowing how many people have this. It's exceedingly improbable. It's almost completely implausible that we have come anywhere close to diagnosing even half of the people who have this. And if that's true, we didn't have, and we actually have 250,000 people with it, which is a gross underestimation. Like we almost certainly have you know, millions of people with it already. It's exceedingly unlikely that those million people have all gotten in the last two or three weeks. No way. No way. It would have to have it like an R naught of 10. Yeah. So ironically, seeing more and more cases diagnosed often perpetuates fear because people are saying, oh, it's spreading, but really that's massively changing the, the death ratio. It's actually, it's actually a good thing. Right. <laughs> well, well, also, also though, it's also, I mean, the other thing to consider is that it's also making it almost indeterminable. And so you have all these people, you, know, you, you have like half the country that they're not necessarily whatever you see. So you have pundits on television and the media and so forth saying we need to test everybody. Trump is failing us because we need to be testing every person in America. Okay. Well, here two things are going to happen when we test everybody in America. One is that information is going to be completely useless because we've never done that before. So we don't have any idea what it means. We don't have any idea what the prevalence would have been if we treated it like every other viral infection. We've treated it completely different. So the fact that we find 10 million cases doesn't mean anything because it's 10 million out of 330 million at that point. Whereas if we had 10 million people and we were only testing around the same guidelines that we we're using for the flu, we could say there's 10 million people of this that have this, which is actually fewer people than have the flu usually. So one, we make the data about this virus almost completely useless. The second thing that we do is we make the data from this virus completely incomparable in to anything in the past, right? So we, we can no longer, to your point, we can no longer quantify the death rate of this virus relative to the flu. Because in order to do that, we would have had to test everybody in America for the flu and know the absolute total number. So if we tested everybody in America, we are going to get 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, a million more, a million times more positive cases. Like we don't know. Like we have no idea what the prevalence of, say, the flu is. It's possible that 80% of America is carrying the flu virus right now. We don't know. We've never tested that. So if we find out 50% of America is carrying the coronavirus, but we don't know that 80% of the people are carrying influenza virus, what have we learned? Nothing. Like, we've made it completely useless at that point, which is why we can't test everybody in America, which is why we have to set some general standards. 
it's very unlikely that somebody is going to it's very unlikely that somebody's going to just sit around their house and die without seeking medical attention if they have this infection. Now, it is true that maybe they could have been saved if it was diagnosed earlier, and that's everybody's argument to it. Um, but at some point, it, this is going to self-select. It is going to kill a certain number of people. And it might just kill the really sick people. It might it might kill some really sick people that are slow to respond. It might kick. It might kill some otherwise healthy looking people that have some uh, something else going on that we're uncertain of. Or maybe they just got a bigger viral load than anybody has ever had, and they were only thirty years old and they're healthy, but they, you know, they just got a, a bigger bolus of the virus, and they were sleep deprived, so their immune system was, you know, depleted. I think that's one of the big reasons healthcare providers are getting it to such a high degree. I don't think it's necessarily because they're being exposed to it um, so much, uh, you know, because they they are wearing protective equipment, and everybody's really cautious about that right now. But when you're you know, when you don't sleep enough, you decrease your immune function by like 30% in a single night of, of bad sleep. So, you know, if you're running around with only 60 to 70% of your normal immune function and you're dealing with people who have this all the time, you're exponentially more likely to have the disease and, you know, have the disease from the viral exposure. And, um, and the more, immunosuppressed and depleted you are from resources from being tired and overworked the more likely you are to succumb to the disease and have a really bad outcome or death yeah so i'm really glad you brought that up because i definitely want to dive dive into you know the active steps we can take with our immune system and lifestyle to make us more resilient i I just have some last follow-up questions about what we were talking about because i think you've done a brilliant job of you know, painting a realistic picture of what's going on, even if it's a picture that we don't really know. But in any case, it might not be exactly the, you know, the image that's portrayed in the media. That said, so this is my huge question. So that said, why then are we seeing this, what we perceive as just a complete, you know, collapse situation and something like in Italy? Um, Is it, I mean, so is that from coronavirus or is that from the the response that we have had to it and how we're being dealt with it? Because I mean, because like on the one hand, you know, we can, you know, discuss how the numbers aren't what they might seem and, you know, it's not, act, might not actually be what's happening like we think. But then at the same time, we look at the system in Italy and the hospital systems and they're just overwhelmed and we're seeing that potentially happening in things like, you know, New York or other cities. So if that's happening, it's happening. Right. So we do know, like, like I said, the one thing that we do know is deaths, right? Like that's, we're pretty accurate with that. It's pretty hard to not be accurate with that. Even if, even if we're saying, you know, like people are dying with this and not necessarily from it, like how are we categorized as not, not necessarily that important, but that's like, that's the number we know the best is how many people are dying. And a lot of people are dying in Italy and there's lots of potential reasons for that. Right. So one reason, you know, one reason for that is simply just the medical capacity. Right. Um, So, you know, the the World Health Organization ranks all of the countries in the world for their ability to respond to a medical disaster, which this would, of course, fall into. Um, 
And America is ranked number one, and Italy is ranked number 23, I think, or maybe 33 or something, but it's down there. Italy has, I think, 2.2... Uh, no, it has it has uh, yeah 2.2 beds for every. Uh, I'm going to make up some numbers, but it, the the ratio is about right. So I want to say they have 2.2 per 10,000 or per 100,000 people. They have 2.2 ICU beds. Well, we have 34, right? Um, so that's one that's one factor. It's like you know how prepared is the medical system for this? I think much like much more likely. Uh, it's, it's we're dealing with the fragility of the population, right? So if you go back to my, my earlier postulate that, you know, there's a bell curve of how many people throughout the season are going to die from any given disease. And, you know, if we're just going to lump this in with influenza-like illness, um, a certain number of people are going to die from influenza-like illness. And, it's a fairly constant number. Like in America, I mean, I realize this is the double, but you know, it, in America, it's between like thirty thousand and sixty thousand per year are dying from influenza. Um, it's like one hundred and twenty-five thousand from influenza, or, or you know, it's a lot more than that. But let's let's just stick with influenza. So if we lump this into that and we say, okay, well, the same number of people are going to die, but just a lot more of them are going to die from coronavirus now instead of influenza because coronavirus is more deadly and it's going to kill them faster. It's going to kill them sooner. It's more contagious. It's more likely to get them. But it's not any more likely to kill anybody who wasn't going to die under that risk curve anyway. And, of course, that's an oversimplification, but it, the, the concept is valid. So if I know that everybody underneath this curve is likely to die from that. Well, there's a reason that they're likely to die. There's something about them that makes them more likely to die. So something glib would be like, who's more likely to die? The absolute risk for everybody dying in a car crash is not the same, right? If you drive a really safe car and you drive the speed limit and you, you know, you do every, like you, you obey all of the laws and you don't text and drive and Versus if you're, uh, you know, a high functioning alcoholic and you drive a motorcycle and you're 20 years old and you're always speeding and like, all right, you're much more likely to that relative risk. So you would be more likely to fit underneath that curve if that curve were car deaths. So if we look at the population that's vulnerable to dying from influenza like illness, well, that is older people with what we call comorbidities, meaning that they have other medical issues that they're dealing with and they're older. So their immune system isn't functioning as well. They don't have as much energy resources. They have less muscle. They have lower metabolic function and they're dealing with the disease already. So they have less resources to deal with this same infection that we're all dealing with. Now it's true that Europe is the, that Italy is the second oldest population on the entire planet. And it's, the oldest in Europe. So let's just say that uh, nine out of every 10 people that die from this are over the age of 70. Well, if Italy has 30, 40, 50% more people over the age of 70 relative to the country next door, then it's going to have 30, 40, 50% more deaths, right? 
So now instead of having 300 deaths a day, they're going to have 450 deaths a day instead of, right? And so that's true on its own. Now, the other thing is that the R naught, I told you, is the most important thing in predicting how many people are going to be infected. And therefore, regardless of the death rate, if you keep the death rate constant, the more people that get infected, the more people that die. Now, Italy is a very warm culture, and they tend to live in highly population-dense areas. So uh, Italy has something like 532 people per square mile. America has 94 people per square mile. So if we're worried about the how many people each person is going to infect, well, if you have almost... You know, if you have over five times the number of density, that means you probably are going to infect five times as many people, right? Now, you add to that that Italians tend to live with their extended family. So it's very common for parents and grandparents and grandchildren to live all in the same house. And if everybody is being exposed to it, and kids are probably being exposed to it more because, you know, they mix and touch more than we do, and they put more stuff in their mouth and nose, and they don't have the same sanitary, you know, sanitation tendencies. And the kids are giving it to the parents, and the kids are giving it to the grandparents. Now you have a higher population of people who are getting it. You have a higher population density. You have an older population that's less likely to be able to deal with it. So all of those are factors. And then the other thing that's a fact is, like I said earlier, I think it might be it, it might be Italy's biggest port, but it's definitely one of their most major ports. is It's like some exchange deal. I forget the name of it. It's um, some exchange deal they did with the Chinese, and the Chinese essentially run that that port. And so there's you know six hundred and some odd thousand uh, Chinese nationals um, in Italy, and the area of Italy that's most affected is close to that port. So they could have just had a lot more disease come a lot quicker, have an older population that lives in a more dense area, and younger kids, younger people are more exposed to older people than they are here. So all of those things combined to lead to a completely different picture than what we're seeing here. Yeah, that's actually something I've been thinking about, The almost the sad irony that because Italy has one of the longest-lived populations, which you know we would see as a, a marker of longevity and health, that at the same time, that would make them more susceptible to, you know, succumbing to an infectious disease like this. Right. And, and we could have, I mean, the, the, next, the next epidemic, God forbid, could, could actually target children more, right? It could, be more, it could be more problematic in people who don't have as developed of an acquired immunity versus an innate immunity. Like it's more targeted towards towards children, and children die from it more than adults. Well, then the younger population is more at risk, right? Or let's say next time it's not a pulmonary infection. Next time it's a GI infection that causes such severe dysentery that people dehydrate and die. And now it's like, well, malnourished countries and countries without as much access to water supply, to clean water, those that's going to be the biggest, you know, so... It, it all depends on the environment, right? Like none of us are equally suited to the environment, to surviving the environment. Like all, all people aren't equal, right? Like we're not equal even throughout our lifetimes. Like I'm nowhere near as capable as the 25-year-old version of me. But I'm also like not as capable as lots of people my age or more capable than other people my age, you know, as far as fighting off this infection. So, I mean, 
there's no way of knowing what the next pandemic means. I mean, wise people can't predict the unexpected because it's unexpected. Like, and so all this bickering about whether or not we have enough ventilators or our response was fast enough or what, should we have listened to the experts? Like, no, but like, there's no possible way this was unexpected. And because it's unexpected, we don't know, we don't know how to deal with it. And we certainly couldn't have predicted it because it's never happened before. Yeah. And then to that point, at the same time, it's like, so we enact, you know, something like social distancing. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, how effective a practice like that is, or, you know, quarantine type behaviors. On the one hand, I completely see the the purpose there and how that can help matters. At the same time, I personally come from the mindset of the ultimate role of environment, social interaction, life mindset, your just your your life and how that relates to health. And I'm like very curious about the long-term implications of a quarantine type lifestyle on the individuals beyond just, you know, whether or not it affects or addresses our um, susceptibility to COVID or transmission of it. So how effective do you think something like social distancing is? You know, when I go to the grocery store now at Whole Foods, there's like the tape on the floor. So you're, you know, six feet away from everybody. Um, Do you think that is having an actual effect? Do you think it's more like we think it's having an effect? So it has an effect. That's the other thing. We just don't know. It could be, it could be that we could say, hey, everybody wash your hands five times as much as you ordinarily do and don't touch each other and try not to touch your face. And that might flatten the curve that they're talking about. We might need to social distance. We might need to self, self-isolate. We don't know. Now, what, would I, what I do know is like the CDC, this isn't new, right? The CD, we've had pandemics before. We've had infectious pandemics before. And the CDC has guidelines for this. And they've got, these guidelines, again, are based off of historical data, what we've seen in the past and what works and what doesn't work. And then that a lot of times leads to clinical research. And let's try this in smaller scales. So let's try this every flu season and let's see how it works. Well, it turns out that social distancing doesn't really help during the flu season, or at least it doesn't help significantly enough to warrant doing it. Is it true for this case? absolutely nobody knows. Like we don't have the slightest clue. It makes intuitive sense, right? If I, if I'm around fewer people, if I'm sharing resources than with fewer people, I'm less likely to give it to somebody. I'm less likely to get it. Now, at some point you have to ease off of that, right? Because I can't just isolate myself forever in hopes that I'm never exposed to this. I'm going to be exposed to this as long as I'm part of the human race, right? So we're all going to be exposed to this. The question is, do we all get exposed to it the next month or do we all get exposed to it in the next two years? Like every person on this planet has been exposed to the herpes virus. If you do serotypes on people, if you do serology on people, you you find out that 98.6% of the people in the world are carrying the herpes virus or antibodies to the herpes virus. So So they are showing that they've been exposed to the herpes virus. Well, this is probably like that. We're probably going to see that every person on the planet is going to be exposed to this. The only other possibility is that it kills so many people that it doesn't get to transmit to anyone else and that it eventually just degrades into nothingness and there are no more pockets of this virus in existence anymore. And that's very unlikely to happen. So we're all going to be exposed to it. What we do know is that 
giving it to yourself by touching yourself in the face and the eyes, you know, the eyes and the nose and the mouth, giving it to yourself is the most likely way that you're going to get it. Or, you know, you getting it from the air because it, it, you know, when you sneeze, you get what we call an aerosolization, right? So it's like aerosol cans. It's like you're spraying little bits of fluid out into the, into the air to where it almost looks like a cloud to where it's kind of lingering around in the air. If it's a super small particle, and then you could breathe that in, and now you've gotten that in. Obviously, we don't want to be sneezing on people. On people, Should we all wear a mask? Well, if you're not trained on how to use a mask properly, there's a reasonable chance that you're more likely to give it to yourself by touching yourself you know, when you're taking your mask on and off and, uh, and, and things like that. Or like when you're reaching up and you, know, you have this moist cloth over your face and you're reaching up and kind of trying to scratch it and fiddle with it and things like that. You know, and if you get a high concentration of the virus on the mask itself because it's in the air and now it's all stuck to the outside of the mask and there's billions of little virus particles and now you take the mask off and you put your hands on that and you put that away and now you touch yourself you know, in your mouth or your nose, your eye or something like that, and you wipe it into yourself, well, you've kind of given it to yourself by having the mask, which is why that's not 100% certain either. And, yeah, the other thing is, well, let's say by washing our hands and wearing a mask and social distancing, but not self-isolating, right? So we're still going to work. We're just staying six feet away from everybody. We're still traveling, but, you know, we're we're doing everything to where we're, we're really far away from each other. Everybody's wearing masks. Everybody's washing their hands. Everybody's wearing gloves even. It could be that, okay, now essentially nobody gets it until we take off the mask, until we take off the gloves, until we quit social distancing. Now everybody's still going to get it, right? Like if it's still around, everybody's going to eventually be exposed to it. So we have to let people get exposed to it. Because we believe that it confers immunity, meaning if you get it once, you develop antibodies to it, and now you're infinitely less likely to get it again. Um, not infinitely, but you know, significantly less. So we have to balance it with the fact that we, we want herd immunity, what they're calling herd immunity, right? Like we want everybody to eventually be exposed to it. Ideally, we want everybody to be exposed to it with plenty of medical resources around so that if they are exposed and they do have a very severe reaction to it and they do have a lot of medical problems, we have the medical resources to take care of them to give them the best chance of living. But we also want life flights for every automobile accident, and that's not possible either, right? Like some people are just farther away and they get in an accident in a remote area and had they gotten in that same accident in New York City, they might have lived versus if they get in that accident in the middle of the desert somewhere and it takes them five or six hours to get to the hospital. The CDC, like I said, you can you, there's a page on their website. You can go to it. It's, um, it's called the Pandemic Response for Influenza. It's written at like a high school level. It's not super technical. And it talks about the different phases of pandemic and when we start washing our hands more and when we start social distancing and when we start wearing masks and when we start isolating and quarantining. And right now we are responding at what's called a category five or level five, which is the highest category there is. And that is reserved for I want to say expectations of at least 2 million people or 1.8 million people dying. So we are doing the most aggressive prevention policies that we know of. Like we're, we're doing the absolute most that we can do. And we don't know what the key is to it. We don't know 
we don't know for sure that what we're doing is the right thing. We don't know if we're, if we're giving it to the right number of people over the right amount of time, you're letting people be exposed to it. We don't know to what degree we're preventing it with mask and hand washing and social distancing and quarantining. So in the absence of good information, we're just acting as though the worst case scenario could be true. And let's do the most we can until more data comes in. And not that I don't care or I'm callous about it. Um, but so far, no country has, has, um, you know, had more than a thousand deaths a day. Now we have a we have a much bigger population than Italy or Spain, and they're putting up numbers in the eight hundreds and so forth. So we may break that number, but even at a thousand deaths a day, if you, I mean, if if you said we hit you know a thousand deaths a day and like sustained a thousand or more per day, and you know we averaged that over the course of three months consistently, we had ninety thousand people die. I mean, that's probably like by far. Yeah, by far the worst case scenario. Um, there, there's a really good chance that this is somewhat self-limiting. Like I was saying, if a virus spreads too quickly and it's too, or if a virus is too virulent, meaning that it causes too many deaths, too high a portion of the population that it infects to die, then that virus is going to go away and it's going to sort of self-level off. And we're not really sure if that's what happened in China or not, because we don't know how true anybody's data is, but we, we have more reason to question the validity of their data than anybody else's. But, you know, everybody's data is questionable because everybody's data is, imp is imperfect. So the answer is, I don't know if social distancing is the right thing to do, but I'd say for the time being, it's reasonable for a little bit longer, maybe. At some point, we have to accept a certain death level. And if we're, you know, if we, if we plateau out and you're averaging, you know, three or 400 deaths Now we're over that right now, but you know, let's say we're peaking right now and it goes back down and, and we're only looking at, you know, two, three, 400 deaths a day. That's probably not worth shutting down the whole economy for just like we don't, you know, we don't quit driving automobiles to prevent every single death. There has to be some acceptable point where we're like, you know, the risk of dying from this is so low that we're risking more by people not working you know, that's leading to more domestic violence. That's really leading to more divorces. That's leading to more depression. That's leading to more suicides. That's leading to more financial crises. That's leading to, you know, more homelessness. And, you know, we have to balance it with the other things that are likely to kill us and the other things that are likely to destroy our, our way of life. And, you know, it's, at some point we'll have enough information to say it's better. We believe it'll be better. We believe for the whole of America, the greatest good for the greatest number of people, we, we believe is to quit social distancing at this point and like everybody get back to work. Or maybe we do something simple like going, uh, since, you know, since your relative risk under 40 years old is almost zero, um, if you, uh, if you're, you know, under this age and you're otherwise healthy and you, and you don't routinely engage with the elderly or infirm, then you should go back to work. Maybe after all those people have had it and now they're less like we let that go in for two or three months. And now all those people have been exposed to it and had it and de developed immunity to it. Now we can start letting other people who have a slightly higher, slightly different risk profile. Or what they're talking about now is different counties dividing up into counties. Like what are the medical resources of your county? What are the population of your county? What's the population density? What are the demographics? How old are people? How sick are people? 
if you live in a really healthy town and it's not super big and you have a lot of medical resources for a few people and it's a fairly young, healthy population, let that, just let that area go. Like let them, let them push on the gas and like just jump back into it. We can pull it back if we need to, if things, you know, ramp up, like we could, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we could do. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold content. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked Farm Direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee.
Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Hi friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? 
I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I have to tell you a funny story about the masks. So like about two years ago, I had really, really severe mercury toxicity and I was struggling with um, like chemical sensitivities and I was reacting to everything in my environment. And um, I bought like one of those really, really expensive masks <laughs> that um, like has like the filtration system and everything. Like it was really legit. Yeah. Um, then I 
you know, it started feeling a lot better. Things improved. I moved and I was like, I'm just going to throw away everything that I associated with this old identity of feeling sick. Uh, so I, threw, uh, I threw it away. I threw away a hundred of those. <laughs> yeah. So, and then this all happened. I was like, Oh, of course, of course. Um, yeah. but in any case, so going to the steps that we can take, um, given this whole new context of, I'm, thank you so much for this conversation, by the way, I think it is really valuable and really puts things in perspective. So now I think I'm understanding more when we talk about, you know, taking things to combat the virus. Would that really like, you know, be at supplements? I'm thinking mostly like supplements at the moment. Are those ever things that directly kill the virus or is it really just about modulating the immune system or supporting the immune system? Like, is there, and now I'm understanding more, I guess, why things like alcohol, you know, kills it. So it's literally like degrading the virus is what it sounds like. Right, right. Well, so, so the virus has like, um, I don't know if it's a lipid bilayer or like a lipoprotein, but it has like a, it has like a membrane essentially inside that protein shell. And that protein shell isn't like consistent. You know, like you think of that as sort of like a Swiss cheese kind of consistency has lots of holes and pores in there. And so you, you can get things like, you know, soap, it can degrade that, that membrane in there and things like alcohol uh, will degrade that membrane in there. And then now you've exposed the genetic information to air, or, you know, oxygen, whatever, like things in the, and that ordinarily um, uh, would degrade the genetic information in there. So now you degrade that virus and make it useless really quickly. There are different postulates around that. So the first thing that I'll say is that the really good news about this is that the 99% solution is the same thing that I always talk about, right? It's sleep, nutrition, exercise, and stress mitigation or mindfulness, whatever you want to call that category. That's the 99% solution. Now, by definition, supplements are supplemental to that. So you can do supplementation on top of that. There's some, there's some arguments out there that vitamin D3 will help. There's some arguments that vitamin D3 will be uh, harmful. There's arguments out there that vitamin C will help. We know that there are certain things that tend to support the immune system. Fish oils, vitamin C, vitamin D3. We know these things tend to support good immune system functioning. Now, there's also things like zinc. Uh, Zinc can actually interfere uh, with what we call the um, the ion gradient of a of a cell, how many positive charges and how many negative charges are inside of versus outside of a cell. So, uh, you know, a cell wall is divided by the you know the fluid around it, uh, the fluid surrounding it, and that has like a certain pH, right? It has like a certain protein and acid profile. The water around it or the fluid around it, and then the inside of the cell has a different one, and it exchanges information through something called pores and channels, and so it lets things in and out, flow in and out to balance out this gradient uh, to be the right gradient. And if the gradient gets too far off, then the cell can no longer function, and the cell dies. There's some evidence, and this is in vitro, meaning they did it in dishes, like in petri dish or something, uh, you know, under under a microscope, not inside of a human. Um, that zinc actually interferes with the pores that allow the virus to get inside of a cell. And so zinc supplementation could actually be specifically helpful for a viral infection. But would it be true for this viral, this virus infection, right? This is why people, you know, take zinc lozenges when they have the cold. This is the science behind that. 
Now there's a, there's a supplement called quercetin that, um, that acts like, that acts like an ion pore that I think transports more zinc inside of the cell, which then makes it harder for the virus to get inside or getting some, like there's some combination of how that works. And I, I forget the exact science of it, but again, all of these are supplemental. These are all supplemental. These are supplementations to boosting your immune system, your immune function. And as I said earlier, if you, if you, have one night of poor sleep, you can decrease your immune, your overall immune function by 30%. Well, if supplements are improving your uh, immune system by, you know, 1% or 5%, well, you'd be a lot, you'd be a lot better off focusing on your sleep, right? If you eat foods that are irritating, you know, that are antigenic, so they, they behave you basically have an immune response to food that you don't do well with. And some of it's because nobody does well with it. Humans aren't designed to digest it. And some of it's you know specific to you. But if you eat things that cause an immune response in your, in your gut, because it's perceived as a outside threat, so your immune system attacks what you've eaten, essentially. And let's say that requires 10 or 20 or 30% of your immune function to deal with what you just ate. Well, now if you're sleep deprived and you're eating food that isn't ideal for you, you could be losing like 50% of your immune function just by not living right, right? Now add to that blood glucose, elevated levels of blood glucose, that impairs the immune system function. And it makes certain things like bacteria and oftentimes unhelpful bacteria have a better chance of growing and proliferating. You want to keep your blood glucose down low. Well, that's nutritional, but also exercise, right? So when you exercise, it stimulates certain transporters in your cells to allow glucose to go in and out of cells better and lowers your overall blood glucose level and therefore making yourself essentially boosting your immune system. Um, so the, the biggest problem I think right now is the stress hormones. If you look at uh, something I think most people are familiar with is is um, the fight or flight system, right? So you have this fight or flight, which is basically means that when you're in this level, you when you're at this level of stress under stress hormones, you're at the highest sort of like the peak physiological um, manifestation of stress hormones or stress and stress hormones that you can have. So these are things like, you know, being attacked physically, you know, and, um, you know, a violent crime, uh, um, you know, being shot at being, you know, if you're in the military or law enforcement or something, or, you know, being in a near car wreck or, uh, even it can be, uh, things that aren't as, uh, externally obvious. It could be bankruptcy. It could be divorce. Like these things stress you out. These cause more stress hormones and you can get such a high level of these that you get into something called fight or flight. When you get into fight or flight, lots of good things happen. And I know we talked about this in one of your other podcasts, you know, one of the other podcasts we did, but you know, lots, lots of, uh, lots of good things happen and that your pupils dilate and you take in more light and your visual field expands your concentration on whatever the threat is that hyper focuses your pulmonary system dilates you take in more air your blood pressure goes up your heart rate goes up your neuromuscular tension goes up you're stronger you're faster your uh, 
pain threshold is higher, your reflexes are faster, you're like a superhuman version of yourself, able to fight off something or flee from something in your external environment that's likely to cause you serious harm or death. Now, the reason we don't just run around like that all the time, super capable, is because we're taking energy away from all sorts of areas of our body. And one of the major systems that we're taking energy away from to make ourselves superhuman is we're taking away our immune system because our immune system doesn't matter at fight or flight. It doesn't matter if you can fight off infections and parasites or repair damaged tissue if you're about to be eaten by a tiger. You have to get away from the tiger before your immune system needs to function again. So the more stress you're running around with right now, the lower your immune system is functioning. And also, the less joy you'll have and the, and the worse your brain is functioning, so you won't be able to make rational decisions and rational observations and put things into perspective and be a good communicator and deal with your crazy kids at home while you're, you know, sequestered inside and all that other stuff. So, Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why I was thinking that the implications of, you know, the quarantine lifestyle and then the stress of everything, you know, how much is that affecting the, I mean, affecting everything compared to the actual virus itself. And on the one hand, I've been thinking about how it's, it's, it's crazy because at the, on the one hand, we could see this, you know, time of social distancing and quarantine. We could actually see it as a time of rest and recovery and reconnecting. I mean, it's so, I, I don't even know how many different, you know, protocols I've read where they say they wish that you could just take a week off or a month off to just, you know, rest and recover. And it's like, I wish we could somehow all see it that way and all just use this as a time to, you know, not have fear and instead focus on what, what can we learn about ourselves, you know, more time with family. Um, And then I just think about even things like, I've been listening to some interviews and they'll say, oh, you know, you need to do all these things to boost your immune system. So, you know, don't drink any alcohol, don't do anything like that. And I, and I can't, even to that, I'm like, well, if a person's been drinking a glass of wine, you know, as part of a healthy lifestyle for years, I don't know that it's going to help telling them, you know, stop drinking your glass of wine at night. Um, I feel like that might just add more stress to the matter. Of course, we don't want people becoming alcoholics, but just, I think the message is often, you know, so one of fear. And then you brought in the whole sleep thing and I, I mean, I could obviously talk to you for hours about that. I, for listeners, you've got to check out the interview we did earlier because we dive deep, deep into sleep. For, so for people right now who are struggling with the stress aspect of things and do feel it impacting their sleep, what would you recommend for you know sleeping during this time of intense potential stress? Yeah. So, I mean, it, this is actually, I believe the crux of it all. And and if I can be helpful at all, this is the most likely way I can be helpful. So the very first thing that I tell people to do is to do what I've I've done throughout this show is to, to look at the data yourself and then put it in perspective. Nothing means anything, right? Everything is, everything has to be compared to contextually to other things for it to mean anything right up means nothing without down black means nothing without white on means nothing without off like we live in this dualistic language and so when you read in the media that you know cases have skyrocketed okay instead of letting that emotionally charged word scare you 
figure out what skyrocketing means. And if they say that, okay, there's 2,000 new cases. All right, well, how many did we have before? All right, well, we had 50,000 before, and now we have 52,000. Well, that's not really skyrocketing, right? Like most people would go, okay, well, you can use that word, but I wouldn't, like, that doesn't cause me nearly as much fear as if we had 2,000 yesterday and we have 200,000 today. That would be skyrocketing, right? So I encourage people first to just avoid the media and social media input on this. If you see it on your social media feed, just mute that person right now for 30 days or whatever you can do that. Um, and, and then go to academic sites, people that are, pre- that are presenting data. And again, our data is very, very, very insufficient to know much of anything right now. But it does a lot better to go to Johns Hopkins side or go to world meters and look at, okay, what are the number of deaths worldwide? How many people died today versus how many people died yesterday? You're like, what does, what does the trend look like in this country versus that country? And now if I say, okay, 600 people died yesterday, which is slightly less than that, but let's say 600 people died yesterday of coronavirus. Okay, well, how many people died from influenza-like illnesses? How many people died from cancer? How many people died from stroke? How many people died from cardiovascular disease? How many people died from medical errors? How many, right? And you can just go in and, and Wildermeters has all of that. You can just go and you can look at all the data and you can say, okay, 600 people seems like a lot, but 600 out of 330 million, that is now your risk of dying, which is an, you know, an infantile, it's such a small percentage, you couldn't even express it. You couldn't even articulate it. It could be so many zeros before, you know, behind the decimal that you wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense to say. It would be like a billionth, you know, some billionth of a percent or something. So if you have a billionth of a percent of dying from this disease today or tomorrow, are you really going to concern yourself with that? Because you have like a one in 300,000 chance of getting struck by lightning. And most people aren't worried about getting struck by lightning. So do your own research and it, and it, it's a lot more favorable to look at the data however you're going to look at it as opposed to listening to some uh, you know, politician or media personality telling you what their interpretation of that means. The other thing is to keep in mind that no, there's no such thing as an accurate model. Models are approximations. And the more information we have, the better the model will look. And over time, we'll get more information, so the models will become progressively more accurate right up until the point where they don't matter anymore. Like when we kind of get to the terminal end of all this, then we'll have close to enough data to actually be able to predict where we ended up. But we couldn't predict, like we can't predict where we're going to be six months from now because we don't know enough information. So just realize that the unknown is just as likely to be positive as it is to be negative. You could say, you know, we don't know that this thing isn't going to completely peter out in four weeks and go down to essentially nothing. Like we don't know for sure that China lied and that their data isn't true, but that's what their like. That's what their pattern looked like. They spiked up for a while, had a little dip, they had a little bitty spike again, and then it just dropped off. And now they're having like single digit deaths and you know, a, a few dozen new cases per day, which over population of 1.3 billion is completely insignificant. That's not even a rounding error. And so just look at your own data, interpret or look at the data, the raw data and interpret it however you interpret it. And if you're somebody who's high strung, 
you're going to interpret it different than somebody who's pretty laissez-faire. But it'll at least be you. It'll be your interpretation. It'll be your normal stress and risk um, tolerance. And it'll, it'll, be your, it'll be your spin on the data as opposed to somebody else's spin. Number two is, like I said, make sure you're eating well, make sure you're exercising, staying mobile, and make sure you're doing something to control your stress in general, which is something like exercise and breath work and meditation and mindfulness and coloring and distracting yourself with, you know, other good information. You could watch comedies, you could read novels, you could play with your kids, you can go on a walk. Like there's things that you can do to take your mind off this, which will decrease your overall stress hormone levels. And your overall stress hormone levels being lower means that you have higher immunity. And it also means that you're more likely to be able to go to sleep well at night. Now, the biggest problem with daily stress is that daily stress tends to interfere with sleep. If you have high levels of stress, if you think about it, could you go to sleep if you were, if somebody were shooting a gun at you? No, you have too many stress hormones. You're not going to fall asleep during a gunfight. So what if you have half that many? Well, you're probably going to sleep half as well, right? Uh, you're going to, you're probably going to sleep, but you're not going to sleep very well. What if you have a quarter of that? Well, you're going to sleep a little better. What if you have, you know, a tenth of that? You're going to sleep a little better. So the lower your stress hormones throughout the day, the better you're going to be able to sleep. So you do all of those things to lower your stress hormones. Now, the second part is to really focus on your sleep, because if you don't sleep well, by definition, you're going to wake up with more stress hormones tomorrow. Because we have this contract that we signed when we were born, before we could even read or sign, we signed this contract that said in order to repair our body for tomorrow, our brains and our bodies for tomorrow, we have to sleep. And there's a set number, there's a finite amount of time that we need to sleep in order to prepare ourselves for tomorrow. And as adults, that number is somewhere around eight hours. If you only sleep six hours, Instead of eight hours, you've given up 25% of your preparation for tomorrow. You've given up 25% of your resources. So how are you going to get through tomorrow? Tomorrow's still coming. You're still doing it whether you sleep or not. Tomorrow's still coming. The demands on your body and brain are still going to be there. So part of it is by not doing as much and not responding to the demands on you. And the other part of that is marshalling your own body's resources to use yourself, your own body as its fuel source to get through the day. And the way we do that is by increasing stress hormones. And I've just told you that having high stress hormones decreases your immune function. So now you're not sleeping well. You're waking up with higher stress hormones. You're decreasing your immune function. And the peak of your immune system functioning is while you're asleep. So if you're not sleeping well, you're losing about 50% of your daily immune function, which is going on during deep sleep. That's not happening as well. So now you're messing with some of that. You're having higher stress hormones, your immune system during the day. And so now you have worse immune function. You're more likely to get the virus. You're more likely to have more symptoms from the virus. You're more likely to spread that virus to somebody else. So get good sleep. Easier said than done. So how do we do it? And I, we may have talked about this on your other podcast, but you take a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle of it. And on one side, you write your to-do list. And that's determined by you and how you're wired. Some people need a to-do list of three major things that they're going to handle in the next 24 hours. Some people's to-do list are six months projected up to the future. Whatever's you is you. 
write down your to-do list on the left-hand side of the paper. Everything that you know you need to do, even if you don't know when you're going to do it or how you're going to do it, but it's on your mind, put it on that list. Now, on the right-hand side of the, that line, you're going to write your to-worry list. And your to-worry list is things that you don't have any control over, but you want to make sure you worry about it. So you could write, you know, con, you know corona death rate. Like, you know, you can't control that, but I want to make sure I worry about that tomorrow. You know, whether or not I'm going to go bankrupt, I want to make sure I worry about that. You're just going to make sure that you everything that could possibly keep you awake is on that piece of paper. Now, go back to that original contract that we need eight hours to be our best tomorrow. Now, if I said, hey, here's this list that's full of to do's and to worries and it's somewhat overwhelming. I'm going to either give you I'm going to give this to you when you're completely exhausted or I'm going to give it to you when you're at your peak. When do you want the list? Well, you want the list when you're at your peak. You want the list when you're well-rested, when you're well-nourished, when your brain is functioning at its highest and your body and your brain and your energy levels are all at their highest competency level. And that is after a good night's sleep. So now we have a list of everything that we're going to do when we're in our ideal state. We have this contract that we know to get in our ideal state, we need to sleep for eight hours. So now this gets really simple. We set an alarm for nine hours before we're going to wake up. So when the alarm goes off, and let's say that's 9 p.m., I'm going to sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So at 9 p.m., an alarm's going to go off. When that alarm goes off, that's my time to get ready for bed alarm. And that's non-negotiable. That's just as important as the alarm that gets you up to go to work. It's exactly the same thing because these alarms are around sleep time. I'm going to get ready for sleep an hour before bed before I want to be asleep and I'm going to wake, I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm not going to give up on sleep until the alarm goes off in the morning. And that total time is nine hours and time in bed is, you know, some portion of that, at least eight hours, right? Once that alarm goes off, you decrease the amount of stimulation going into your brain means you don't worry about anything in your list. You have your list. You don't watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't sit around in super bright lights and flashing lights and loud music. You don't go exercise. You don't juggle chainsaws. You don't do things that are going to stimulate your brain. And you also decrease the amount of light going into your eyes for that hour or so getting ready for bed. Distract yourself from your stressors by making sure your list is complete, by reading novels, by listening to audiobooks, by watching mindless non-emotional television, whatever it is that kind of settles you out, get yourself ready for bed, go to sleep, get in bed and give yourself every opportunity to get eight hours of sleep. And you're not going to have a clock in your room. If you need, an, well, you're going to have an alarm clock, which could be your phone or alarm clock or whatever, but you don't need to see it. You only need to hear it. So it can be under a towel. It can be in a drawer. It can be under your bed. It can be wherever it is that you can't see it. And you lay in bed until that alarm clock goes off and you don't allow yourself to worry about anything on your list because you've already agreed that you want to handle the list when you're at your peak. So why would you waste time worrying about it right now and interfering with your ability to be peaked tomorrow? And so you lay there in the bed until the alarm clock goes off and you'll fall asleep. And if you wake up at some point in the middle of the night, you don't know what time it is because you don't look at the clock 
and your alarm clock might be going off in 15 minutes. It might be going off in four hours. If it's not going to go off for four hours and you lay there and you relax and you don't think about your list and you do breath work and meditation, mindfulness, guided visualization, whatever it is that cools you out, listen to an audio book, do some low light reading, book, whatever, but you're just going to lay in bed and you're going to relax and you're going to stay calm and you're going to wait for your alarm clock to go off. Now, if your alarm clock goes off 15 minutes later, you got seven hours and 45 minutes of sleep and you got 15 minutes of meditation, you're ready. Like you're the, that's the best you're going to be that day. Get up and get after it. If your alarm clock's not going to go off for three or four hours, you're going to fall back asleep. And then when your alarm clock goes off, you're going to wake up and you're going to get after it. You're going to be the best prepared you can possibly be. Whether you sleep six hours or eight hours, you've given yourself the best opportunity to get the most amount of sleep, to be able to handle that list the best, to have the lowest level of stress hormones. Now, the better you handle that list, the fewer stress hormones you'll produce during the day as well, the better sleep you'll get the next night, so on and so forth. That's simple. Oh my goodness. I am smiling so much right now. And I'm really excited because we did not talk about this list last time. We, the, the, the takeaway that I really implemented that I got a lot of good feedback on was the, um, like not looking at the clock thing. Right. Um, but man, this list, okay. I'm really, I am pumped. I am. <laughs> okay. This is really exciting. Um, well, thank you so much. I could talk to you for like another five hours. Um, but I will not. Um, but in any case, this has been absolutely wonderful for listeners. We didn't even talk about like the sleep remedy supplement that Dr. Kirk Parsley has, but I cannot recommend it enough. That's all right. No, but I, but honestly, I can't recommend it enough. Like whenever I stop taking it and then I start taking it again, I'm like, why did I stop? And then apparently, you know, David Sinclair is loving it as well. And um, we do have a special offer for listeners. If you go to melanieavalon.com slash sleep remedy and or use the code Melanie Avalon, you can get 10% off. So that's absolutely amazing. And I do want to be super respectful of your time. This was amazing, but I can't let you go without the last question that I ask every guest on this podcast. I don't know if you remember it from last time, but um, it's really appropriate right now. And it's just, what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, geez, that's so hard to come up with just one. Um, <laughs> you know, I... I, I'm I'm grateful for having a rational mind to be able to deal with this right now because <laughs> I really feel sorry for people who who can't uh, hover around rationality right now. That's got to be just overwhelming. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And I talked about this in the beginning, but I think you know you're such a wonderful source to people to bring that sense of rationality because you've got you, the MD background, you're a doctor, you also have the government experience, so you have I think a you know a more broader perspective of the. Like, that whole aspect of everything. So I think you're such just a valid resource and I can't thank you enough for this conversation. And I I said this last time, I look forward to talking to you again. Maybe next time we talk, it'll be about a a happier subject, but in any case, this has been absolutely amazing and um, sleep well tonight. (laughs) I will. And thanks for having me on and letting me get on my soapbox and pontificate and all that other stuff. And I, I hope you, thrive and do well during this period. And, um, you know, we'll meet up on the other side. I, I, I still have several friends I need to visit in Atlanta. So if I ever get around to doing that, maybe we could go have a cup of coffee or something. Oh, yes. That sounds perfect. You can put on your post COVID to-do list Yeah. <laughs> or if I'm in Texas. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, thanks. It's been wonderful. Likewise. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, 
you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.